0: Okay, so we're just over halfway through now, I think, our our series, uh, which we call Glimpses of Jesus, Uh, and we've been looking at characters from the Old Testament who foreshadow something, who show us something about, obviously, the central character in the Bible, Jesus Christ. And what we're learning is that the, the whole of Scripture points to Jesus. Whatever book you're in, whatever part of the Bible you're in, you can link it through to Jesus. Everything points towards him. And actually, the Old Testament is full of imperfect but anointed people, champions that God raises up to lead his people at a specific time, but who actually offer a glimpse of his ultimate perfect champion, and that is, of course, Jesus. So, so far, we've looked at Adam. We've looked at Moses. And was it Abraham last week? I was in Cresh; I didn't actually hear Matt's talk on Abraham. I'm sure it was brilliant. Um, I was surrounded by babies uh, in my elements, obviously, because that's what I'm brilliant at. Um, but yeah, we've looked at those three characters, and each one we've been able to show through. Look, this this is where you see Jesus in their story, and this is how they point to him. And this week, we're going to look at another key character in the history of Israel, and it is Joshua. Joshua. Um, and I could spend... 20, 25 minutes just telling you Joshua's story. And I don't want to do that because I really want to give as much time as possible for, for just linking it through to Jesus. So I'm going to very, very quickly, literally two minutes, very, very quickly just tell you the brief outline of Joshua's story. And then I really want to focus on the sort of the three or four things I would just want to say about how he shows Jesus. But basically Joshua's story is intertwined at the end with, with Moses' story. We looked at Moses, how he led uh, Israel out of slavery, out of captivity in Egypt and towards the promised land. Uh, Joshua was with Moses when, when, he, when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, and he was in charge, actually, of Israel's military. And there comes a point where they, they've got to the edge of the promised land, this land called Canaan, and Moses sends 12 spies into the land. He says, go and have a look. Go and check it out. Go and see what's there. We need it because we're going to need a strategy to get into this land. Go and have a look at it. See what it's, what it is. So these twelve guys go to the promise uh, into the Canaan to have a look, and they come back. And ten of the twelve come back full of fear. They come back saying, "Gosh, this it's scary out there. There's giants. There's walls, walled cities. There's armies. There's there's so much to be worried about. I'm not sure we, could, we should go in there, guys. This is this doesn't look safe to me." But two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back saying, "Guys, this land is amazing." We've got to get in there and don't worry about the giants and the the walled cities and the armies. God has has promised this to us, He'll sort it out. Let's just go. We've got to go in. Unfortunately, the ten people are heard above Joshua and Caleb. And and what we see is a whole generation of Israelites miss out because they feared and they didn't believe God that He was going to give them the promised land. And, And 40 years follow of wandering in the wilderness and not getting into the promise. And the whole generation dies out without getting in. And actually, even Moses doesn't get in. Uh, actually, for him, his issue was that he, um, God instructed him to, to bring forth water out of a rock. And he said, just speak to the rock, and it'll pour forth water for the people to drink. And Moses, instead of just speaking to the rock, he hit the rock with his staff. And God was saying, look, what are you doing? You've made that about you and not me. I told you to speak to the rock. And you've made it about you, you you've done something there, and now everyone's gonna think that you brought the water out of the rock and not me. I want people to trust me, not you. And Moses doesn't get in either. And in the in the end it's Joshua. Joshua is the man who gets the honour and the joy of leading Israel into the promised land. And actually unlike Moses, Joshua is successful in completely trusting God and let and getting them getting the people where God has always meant to get them in. And, and I guess the most there's a miraculous entry into the promised land. Again, another um, another instrument where God stops the waters in their tracks, and the people cross over the River Jordan miraculously. And then we see probably the most famous story, the story that's depicted in that in that picture up there, of they come to this this huge walled, scary city of Jericho, and they're instructed to take the city. And it's like, how are we going to do that? There's so many people there, it's so so well built, we're never going to do it. And actually. Joshua just trusts God, listens to God, and they capture that city simply by just walking around the walls and declaring God's praise. And eventually the walls fall down and they conquer that city. And that's probably the defining moment for Joshua. And then what follows is Joshua just following God's instructions and actually just clearing the land out. The land is full of people who don't know God, people who are a threat to God's people. And God just helps Joshua with a strategy to just clear the land out and just and get to the place where it's theirs. The land is theirs and they settle there. And, and the land is then apportioned out to the different tribes of Israel. And the, and the story of Joshua finishes with, with him just commissioning the people again and saying, look, I'm, I'm about to die. This is what you need to do. You need to keep trusting God. He's brought us here. He's delivered everything he's ever promised to deliver, deliver us. Keep trusting him, with, uh, him. Keep sticking with him. I implore you. I, I urge you. Don't let go of God. He's the one you need. And that in a nutshell, so it's really quick, but that in a nutshell is a story of Joshua. And believe me, there's so many things in this story where I could link through to Jesus, so many comparisons. Um, there were both men who loved Scripture. Joshua loved the Word of God. He knew how important it was. And at one point in the story, he reads the entirety of God's law to the people. He says, look, guys, we've got to get our focus back on God. I'm going to read every single bit of Scripture we've got, every bit of the law that we've got. You just need to hear it again. And we know that Jesus was a man who loved Scripture, who constantly referred to Scripture. 78 times Jesus quotes from the Old Testament Scriptures as he teaches. So there's that link. There's, there's the link that actually both of them had, a, had a, a period of time in the wilderness before actually their ministry really, really kicked in. So Joshua spends 40 years wandering the wilderness with the Israelites before he gets to go in. And lead them into the promised land. Jesus, we know, spent 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness preparing himself, fasting and praying and spending time with God. So there's that sort of link as well. And they were both men who drew attention to God through miracles. We see Joshua's miracles with with, with the, the River Jordan being stopped and, and the walls of Jericho coming down. Miraculous things that happen that can only be attributed to God and just point to him and say, wow, God, you are amazing. We can't do this. You can and we know that Jesus' life was a life full of miracles, things that just pointed to something higher, to someone who is all-powerful. So there's all those things. But what I really want to focus on are these three things. These two things are what I really want to hammer home this morning. These are the things w- which in Joshua's story, they, they foreshadow something in Jesus' story too. So the first one is that God is salvation. The second one is a theme of grace to those who least deserve it. And the third one is that issue of, of leading into a promised land. And they're the three things I really want to touch on strongly this morning. Okay? So this first one. God is salvation. Sometimes I hear that, that phrase, what's in a name? Well, Joshua actually started life named Hosea. And it was Moses in praying for Joshua who renamed him Joshua. And that very name of Joshua means what it says on the screen there, Yahweh saves, God is salvation, Yahweh rescues. Originally, his name just meant salvation, but Moses changed his name to God is salvation. And Jesus, in Greek, is the very same word rendered in in Greek. So in the same way that the, the name Peter means rock, and in English we say Peter, but in Spanish they say Pedro, and in French they say Pierre, and in Italian they say something else, Pietro. In the same way, that name means God is salvation. And in Hebrew, they would say Joshua. And in Greek, they would say Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, But it means exactly the same thing. God is salvation. It's really significant. Joshua was a lonely voice, actually. Him and Caleb were lonely voices in Israel's quest for the promised land. And when others feared, he trusted in God, we see here in in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter fourteen. This is this is the moment where Joshua, as I said, had gone to the land of Ke- the promised land with the twelve spies, and they come back, and ten of them are saying, "We can't take this land. It's too big. It's too scary. We can't do this." But we see what Joshua's response was. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there, and Joshua, son of Nun, that doesn't mean he's the son of a nun, that That doesn't generally happen. Um, In case you're wondering, I can see Luke looking a bit confused. Um, (laughs) And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, Joshua's trust and obedience is rewarded by God because it is him who gets to lead the people into God's promised land. After this, the people still say, no, we're not going, and they miss out. But Joshua's trust is unwavering and actually you know what wh- the story says when the 12 pe- when the 12 spies came back they came carrying this massive bunch of grapes to say look this is some of the fruit this is some of the goodness that's in that land look at this this is amazing if we live there we're going to get access to all this stuff but still they say no but joshua was unwavering and it's easy for us to read the story and to tut at the israelites to say oh well they didn't trust god did they uh, and, uh, you know, if I if i had been there, I definitely would have trusted God. <laughs> I would have definitely got, I would have seen those grapes and gone, yeah, I'm in. No problem at all. I'm going to listen to those two in the minority, and I'm going to go with them. It's easy to think, you know, we'd like to think that we'd be in, in that boat with Joshua. But actually, he was swimming against the tide, and he was in a minority. And it was hard. He was being shouted down and told, no, you're wrong. This This is too dangerous. You can't do it. And ultimately... That for at least for 40 years he, he didn't get to see it and it's incredible strength of character that Joshua has to trust and to remain firm come what may and his belief is unwavering that God is who he says he is and that he will be faithful to his promises and that he will lead them in even if that means taking a road that is fraught with danger and pain and that is our first glimpse of Jesus. Because Jesus is another man whose very name says that it is God who saves. It is God who delivers us. It is God who does it. And he was another man who's, who faced a path fraught with danger. Actually with death. But who remained completely obedient. Completely trusting. Completely faithful to God in order to accomplish that mission. And there were both men who didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. Both of them have a name which says, oh, God saves. God is salvation. Joshua points to it. Actually, Jesus embodies it. Jesus' name isn't just God's salvation. He is God's salvation. He is the, the living and breathing word of it. Jesus is how God saves us. Jesus is our salvation that Joshua pointed to early on, and Jesus lives it out. For Joshua, God is salvation meant stepping out and leading a nation into battle against enemies to secure an earthly safety and prosperity for the people of Israel, to give them the land that they were promised. That's what he did. He, he was a warrior. He was a military strategist. And he led the people into battle and won with God's help. And he knew that he could do that because God had promised to be their savior. For Jesus, it meant stepping out and living an exemplary life and dying a sacrificial death to secure not not earthly safety and earthly prosperity, but eternal glory and salvation for his people, knowing that he himself, God incarnate, was our savior. That's the difference between the two, but you see how they both point to the same thing. And so it leaves us with the question, what about us? Where is our salvation? Because I think sometimes we catch ourselves trying to do and do and do and be and be and be to live in our own strength and to make our lives as successful as possible to try and please God and to try and do the right thing and be the better person to somehow mistakenly earn our own salvation. And sometimes we walk through life knowing deep down that God is our salvation. But we still fear life's challenges. And we wonder how we're going to make it through. And we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we can't see a clear path. And we can't see how it's all going to work out. And even though we kind of know it, we're in despair. That we're not going to get what we desire. The challenge is, the rest of the Israelites, the 10 guys who came back, and and who, who basically won over the Israelite people, came back and they saw problems. They saw fortified cities. They saw giants. They saw armies armed to the hilt. They saw fear. They saw problems. And that for them was too much. We can't trust God in the face of all this stuff, all this earthy stuff. It's just, can't see it. It's bigger than God. He he can't do this. Joshua saw a bunch of grapes and some milk and honey I said, Do you know what? God's enough. God's got this. I can trust Him. We can trust Him. And that's all he needed. To believe, he saw that he saw the same stuff as the other guys. He saw the fortified cities. He saw the giants. He saw the problems, but he also saw the goodness and he saw the promises of God. And that was enough. And I think there's something in that for us. That we can look at the problems in life, we can look at the challenges, we can look at the big scary things, whatever it is, whether it's health, whether it's jobs, whether it's money, whether it's family issues, whether it's whatever it is, and we can look at it and think, "Oh, I can't see past this. This is too big. How's how's God going to fix this? How's it going to work out? I can't see it." Back to Joshua's lesson is actually look closer. Where are the grapes? (laughs) Where are the milk and the honey? Actually, where are the blessings? Where are the things in your life that actually you've forgotten all about that I've blessed you with, that I've given you, that I've not forgotten, that I promised you, that will show you, actually, it's going to be okay. One way or another, I've got this. And we need to do that. We need to trust and not forget. We need to hold on. There's something very key that there's a God is salvation in the Old Testament and there's a God is salvation in the New Testament. God has got this. He wants us around him and not us. He wants us to see his glory and his ability and his capability, not ours. And these little things, these grapes, they might not seem like a big deal. They might seem trivial. They might be something as simple as I've got food on the table. What a blessing. I've got a house to live in. What a blessing. Not everyone has that. I've got a job. What a blessing. Whatever it is, if we see them, sometimes it just lifts us from. From that that doom and gloom and that, that awful thing over there, we actually remember God is faithful. Whatever is missing in our lives, we can be certain that our greatest need as well is accounted for and that is our salvation. Our biggest need, whatever you think it is in your life, your biggest need, our biggest need is to be forgiven for our sins and to be assured of eternal salvation and that is done. And even if they're the only grapes you see, it's enough. Okay? That's the first part. Second thing, something we see in Joshua, something we see in Jesus. There are men who demonstrated grace to the least likely recipients, grace to those who least deserve it. So one of the most interesting stories in the book of Joshua, the story where he captures the city of Jericho, as I said about the walls falling down and they get into that city. There's a story within that of a, a lady called Rahab, and this city, Jericho, was a giant obstacle to the Israelites. It was, this was what was in their way of getting to the rest of the land. And so, again, they, they go through this thing of sending spies. They say, look, we need someone to go and check Jericho out. We need to see where the weakness is. We need to see you know, what's going on there. Let's send a couple of guys in to spy it out. So they send two people in this time, just two. And for whatever reason, and we won't go there, but they end up in the house of a prostitute. Okay? I don't know either. It doesn't tell us. We don't find out. But they end up in this lady's house, Rahab, the local prostitute. Maybe they just thought the last place they look for us is in here. I'm going to assume that was the case. Let's honor them. Um, but the king, the king of Jericho, gets wind of the fact that there's these spies, that they're in Ra- Rahab's house. And he orders, sends, sends people there and orders that they, that she releases them. But what Rahab does, as you can see in the picture on the left, she hides them up on the roof amongst the straw. She buries them and hides them and protects them. And she, sel- she actually lies on their behalf and says, look, they were here, but they've gone. And I don't know where. Maybe you'll catch them down the road. But for whatever reason, she lies and, she's, and she protects these guys and, and they get away safely. When the dangers pass, when these guys are gone, she speaks to these spies. And she says to them why she's helped them. And the reason is that she's heard stories about the Israelites. Somehow, the story of them crossing the Red Sea and escaping the Egyptian army and the Egyptian army being buried in the sea, they've heard about this. She's heard stories of them winning battles against other nations. She's heard things. Actually, there's something about this nation, Israel. They've got this God that they say is amazing, and he's doing all this mad stuff. He's parting the sea. What is that about? And she's heard about this, and she's kind of thinking, do you know what? I'm not an Israelite. I don't know who these people are, but I've heard enough to know that I'm a bit afraid of this God. <laughs> I think if he's doing the stuff that they're saying he's doing, then I, I want to be on their side. <laughs> I don't want to be left to them coming and taking this city because if God's doing what he's doing for them, then this city's going to fall. And I don't want to lose my life. I don't want my family to all die because if God is doing what, he's, what they're saying he's doing, then we're going to lose. And so she says, "Look, I've protected you because I think your God might be who you say he is, and and I don't want to. I don't want to lose. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to be killed. So I've heard enough to know I want to be on your side. And look, I've looked after you here. I've protected you. you, you I, I could have given you up to the, to the king, but I've protected you. So listen, when you come back, if you come back and take this city, will you look out for me, protect me? But you know, one one good turn deserves another." Please look after me. And so the spies say, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, Tell you what, leave a red cord dangling out your window. Obviously, a house was on the city wall. And when we come, we'll look out for it and we'll we'll rescue you. And sure enough, when the time comes, Joshua remembers Rahab. So they're storming the city. They're clearing it out. The walls have come tumbling down. They're they're sending them packing. They're killing people left, right, and center. But Joshua says to the two men who spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house bring her out and all who belong with her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother and her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her entire family and they put them, and in the different translation says it put they, they put them in a safe place, somewhere outside of the camp of Israel. But they, 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 they pardoned them. They, they helped them to survive. They moved them to safety. I find that story amazing. Like, First of all, you've got to know the bloodiness of it. It is a bloody story. It's not a nice story. And the Old Testament, we kind of have to reconcile ourselves with it. It's a different time. It's an ancient time. Life was very different then, and and it does get gory and bloody at times. And we kind of just have to accept that 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 was how it was back then. But we have something here where the Israelites are instructed to rout the city, to ransack it, to get rid of everyone who lives there because they're a danger. They're not people who fear God. They're not going to be good to leave them hanging around. And you or me, as we went in, we might have wanted we might have seen people and thought, oh, do they really deserve this like that person's probably a decent person that probably that person's probably quite nice, like you know they're about the same age as me they've got family like i don't i don't want to I don't want to put that person out, but I bet the person that you thought that about wouldn't have been the local prostitute. <laughs> you wouldn't have looked at that person and thought, "Oh, I really hope they survive." I really hope they're okay. And yet, that's it. That's the person. Rahab is the person, the one person who makes it out of there and is is given a second chance. And she's given that chance because she displays a faith in God, even with very little to go on other than rumors and stories. She made a decision that God is the real deal. And she didn't want to be an opponent of His anymore. And the result is that despite the fact she had a sinful, unsanctified lifestyle, despite the fact she did wrong, despite the fact she slept around, she, she had sex with people for money, she sold her body, she didn't honor it, she receives grace. And she is saved from a certain death. And Joshua doesn't count her previous life against her. He doesn't look at her dodgy lifestyle and say, no, actually, we're going to leave her. Just, just stick her with the rest of them. He says, "Okay, you've shown faith. Here's grace. You're saved. You're you're free." And culturally, that would have been shocking. You can imagine the army being told, "Right, go and kill everyone except that prostitute over there. Just just leave her." Can you imagine that? Like, what? What are you on? She's culturally, she was the lowest of the low. She was scum. She was dirty. She was sinful, in in the eyes of the people. But actually. No, she's to receive grace. And as we fast forward to the New Testament, we see this over and over and over again in the life of Jesus. We see him doing very similar things in order to emphasize the radical grace of God. Jesus regularly chose to mix with and to honor and to bless those people who in society, everyone thought they were the least deserving. You can pick out all sorts of examples. Here's a few. You've got the woman caught in adultery. She's been found out as having an affair. And there's an angry mob just waiting to stone her to death. Right in front of Jesus. And they say, what do you think, Jesus? And he says, do you know what? Let he without sin cast the first stone. If any of you can honestly say you've never sinned before, go ahead, throw a stone, kill her. And none of them do. Because they all know. None of them are sinless. And the woman is spared. She'd done wrong. She'd had an affair. Legally, she was eligible to be stoned. And Jesus said, no, grace. You've got the sinful woman in this picture here. It's not an actual photo. Didn't have cameras back then. Um, Who, you know, she was known as a woman of disrepute. She was known as a woman of sin in the city. And Jesus was eating with important people. And this woman comes in and weeps on Jesus and breaks a jar of perfume on Jesus and washes his feet with her tears and her perfume. And the guy's saying, Jesus, don't you know who this is? This is a sinful woman. She's, she's scum. She's dirty. She, she doesn't deserve to be with you. If you're this great teacher, you shouldn't be mixing with her. And Jesus says, no, this woman has shown me more honor and more reverence than any of you. She's doing the right thing. She's recognized who I am. Grace. You see, it was Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a man this time, someone who who was hated in society because he stole from the people and he lied and he took what he shouldn't take and he made a profit out of people that he shouldn't. And he was hated. And he went up a tree to try and get this glimpse of Jesus. And everyone's thinking, this guy shouldn't be anywhere near Jesus. Jesus is a great teacher, this great miracle worker. They shouldn't be anywhere near him. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, Come down, mate. I'm coming to your house for tea. Let's get to know each other. And the people are like, "What are you doing? He's stolen from us. He's he's scum. He's one of the Roman people. Ah, uh, what are you doing, Jesus?" He says, "No, I'm going to have tea with him." And Zacchaeus' says, life has changed radically. Grace in action, even in Jesus' dying moments on the cross, next to a thief. This guy who. Jesus was on the cross undeserved. He did not deserve to die. He'd done nothing wrong. But the guys next to him, legally, by the letter of the law, deserved what they were getting. They'd sinned. They'd stolen. We don't know how much they'd stolen, but evidently enough in the Roman culture that that they were sentenced to death by that legal system. And this guy, one of them says to Jesus, you know, come on, mate, if you're who you say you are, jump down off the cross. Save yourself. the The other guy says, no, leave him alone. Like, can't you see this is this is someone special. This is I think this is I think this guy is who he says he is. And Jesus says, You know what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Don't care what you've done before. I don't care what life you've lived. I don't care that you deserve to be on this cross. But you're coming with me. You're saved. Grace. Grace to those who least deserve it. And I could have picked hundreds of examples from the gospel, but we see it in Joshua. And it's a foreshadowing of what happens in the New Testament. It's a common theme. Jesus showing grace and kindness and favor to people who are viewed completely undeserving on the basis of their lifestyle. And that's Rahab. Her lifestyle didn't deserve it. But it's radically changed through receiving the grace of God. And, you know, it shows us that God's grace, God's love, extends to the very depths of human depravity. There is nowhere that God's grace cannot go. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. There is nothing that God cannot change. And it is absolutely vital to know that. And just as Rahab's story in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and shows us grace in action, actually our status now, us, today, we can point back at Jesus and see our status in him. Because the Bible tells us that every single person who has ever lived, apart from Jesus, is a sinner. Every single one of us. We are all people who fail. We are all people who have effectively rebelled against God. We are all people who just don't measure up to God's standards. And if God was to judge us today, he could judge us guilty and nothing else. We don't measure up. And that is a huge cause for concern for us because the Bible tells us that the result of that, it says the wages of sin, the result of sin is death. It's separation from God eternally. That when we die, we don't get to be with him because we can't be with him. We're, We're so sinful. And effectively, that puts us as no better than Rahab the prostitute or Zacchaeus the tax collector or the woman in adultery. In the eyes of a perfect just saviour we stand exactly the same sinful and unable to be with god for eternity do you know what if we'd been there at jesus's time and jesus was seen mixing with us the whispers from the crowd should have been just the same what you do with them they're sinful what you do with that guy what you do with chris clifton brown he's a mess he's a sinner don't mix with him We don't deserve anything but punishment from God. We don't deserve anything but separation from God. But the amazing truth is that Jesus looks at us just as he looked at those people that he met. He looks at us with grace, with forgiveness, with love, and he willingly. Willingly went to the cross to die for us, to take that punishment that should be ours, and to save us. And all we need to do is exactly what Rahab did, and accept that God is who he says he is. Accept that Jesus is our salvation. Remember that point one, God is salvation. That's all we need to do. There's no no other thing we can do but just say, God, I'm a sinner, but I believe you save me, and I love you, and I thank you for it. just need to recognise that the only way to eternal life with God is through Jesus and if you're here today and you don't know that already if you hadn't made that decision in your own heart already, can I kind of urge you to consider it can I urge you that you do it because the Bible tells us there is only one way to be assured of heaven and that, I- and, and that is it's not about good deeds or works it's not about staying out of trouble it's not about trying to earn salvation ourselves it's not about being the best person you can be Because you'll fail. We all will. There's nothing we can do as humans to impress God enough for him to forgive us and save us. But actually, he's already decided to do it anyway through Jesus. And that is the way. He's impressed with Jesus, the sinless one who died a sacrificial death. Okay. Final point. Joshua is a man who leads his people into the promised land. And that's what Jesus as well. And you see there the promised land has free Wi-Fi, which is brilliant um we've seen that Joshua is like Jesus because he knew that salvation from God we've seen that Joshua is like Jesus because he demonstrated grace to people who least deserved it and now we see he's like Jesus because he leads his people into the promised land and the promised land was promised by God to the Israelites Uh, A land for them to live in, a land for them to have many descendants. I can't go into the whole backstory of it, but it's there in Abraham, it's there in Moses. Um, And essentially, the promised land was going to be a place of huge blessing, promised by God to Abraham and the nation of Israel. And if you were in Israel, you would be desperate to get there. That's just where you wanted to be. And you'd be desperately gutted if you never saw it. And for many reasons, as we know, for a myriad of reasons, they didn't get to see it until Joshua led them in. Through disobedience, through lack of faith. They endured years and years of wandering in the wilderness. And ultimately, it's Joshua who gets that that, that that chance. And I couldn't help but use a football analogy here, but Liverpool and Everton, do you know what? For best part of 30 years now, Liverpool and Everton have been trying to get into the promised land of winning the league title. For Liverpool, the last time was Cathy, 1990-ish. Everton, it was 1987. I was just four years old. I don't remember it. It's not fair. Um... But over the time, over those 30 years, different leaders, different managers have been raised up with the intention of getting them there. Get us to the promised land. Get us to the league title. Get us there somehow, whatever you do. And they've all tried different things. Some of them have tried to spend lots of money and buy success. Some of them have invested in youth and tried to bring youth up through the ranks and and get get it that way. Some of them have been great Man to man coaches, and they really developed and urged and nurtured people really gently. people like Brendan rogers was like that. He was, it's all about the person and the individual I'm gonna, like he said i like said i 'm not a what did he say i 'm not a uh, i 'm not, not a trainer you train dogs i 'm a coach that 's what he said he 's an idiot anyway <laughs> um <laughs> uh, you can tell I'm an Everton fan if you don't know it. Um, David Moyes was a much more harsh guy. He, you know, he, he was much more about bullying and, and, like, you know, come on, guys, you know, you've got to really go for it. And harsh motivation. Sometimes it's about team spirit. Other guys are like, no, every man for himself. You be the best you can be. Some managers want to play silky, beautiful football. Others just want to launch it long and just bully teams into submission. Each one of them had their own strategy, their own idea for getting into the promised land. And each one of them so far has completely failed especially the Liverpool ones. And Joshua's strength, Joshua's strength was as a military leader. He was hard as nails. He was a great commander, a military tactician. And those gifts actually were pivotal in him leading the nation into the promised land. But there was something much more important, which was the key. And that was that he was chosen and called by God. Numbers 27 this is where Moses is told, look, you know, he's been told you're not going to the promised land, Moses. I'm sorry, but I want you to take Joshua, son of Nun. And this is what he says. Take Joshua, son of Nun, who has the spirit in him. Present him to Eleazar, the priest, before the whole community. Publicly commission him to lead the people to Israel, uh, to the promised land. Later on it says, you know, Joshua will stand before the priest. And he will stand before the Lord to determine his will. And this is how Joshua and the rest of the Israelites should determine everything they should do. Stand before God, determine his will. So yes, he was a great warrior. Yes, he had those abilities. But the most important thing was that he was spirit-filled and he was obedient. And that is what makes Joshua successful. And in the end, it is Joshua's obedience to God that makes that promise uh, see fruit in his life. And when things get rocky and there's descent in the camp, Joshua's constant thing is to bring the people back to God. When things go wrong and they make mistakes, he brings them back to God. Come back to God. We've got to get back to God. Let's read the word together. Let's let's proclaim the law together. Let's do this together. And so too with Jesus. Joshua's obedience and faith takes him into the promised land with the people. Jesus is taking us to a promised land. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. There will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and their God, be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things have passed away. Church, that is our promised land. That is our promised land. And just as Israel needed a leader to bring them into their promised land, we need someone to get us access to ours, and that is Jesus. Because it's only our sin, just as it was Israel's sin and rebellion that stopped them from getting in, it is our sin and our rebellion that could prevent us from getting in, except for Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have someone who wasn't just filled with the spirit of God like Joshua was, but who is God himself. And it gives us access to heaven for all eternity. And just as Joshua acted obediently in leading the people into, into Canaan, Jesus acted obediently in following the Father's will and going to the cross to die for us. Jesus is God himself, fully human, fully man, but he obediently humbled himself when he was sent by his father. And he died a selfless, sacrificial death so that we have that assurance of that promised land, that eternal life. The difference is that Joshua's battle was against flesh and blood, against against enemies and nations. Jesus' battle was against sin, against our sin, against death. And he doesn't lead his people by beating up the enemy with swords and stones he beats he beats the enemy by dying sacrificially and then by beating death and rising to death uh, rising to life, I should say the outcome of our rebellion is should be that a perfectly just God gives us a perfectly deserved punishment, but Jesus takes it for us, and so we can access our promised land. There is no barrier now that land is open to us. We can go there. All we need to do is accept Jesus and thank him for what he's done and declare him as the Lord of our lives. And that is it. So I hope you can see this morning that there's some very clear glimpses of Jesus in Joshua. I've not done all of them because it would take me ages, but there's some things there to, to, to hammer home. And the main thing to grasp is that so much of the Israelite story, as they follow Joshua, is our story as we follow Jesus that we have a gracious and kind and just leader who is chosen by God to exercise God's salvation plan. And if we follow that leader closely, he will lead us to the promised land. We will get to spend eternity with him. I want to leave you with a question. At the end of Joshua's life, he stands before the people and he commissions them again. Guys, you've got to choose God. Choose God. Stick with God. He will lead you right. And the people actually respond and says, yeah, do you know what? We will. And Joshua actually is a bit doubtful. He's like, guys, are you sure? Because you haven't really done it much in the past. <laughs> like, yeah, we're doing it. Because Joshua, Joshua utters those words, you know what? You guys can do what you want. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do that. And I urge you to do the same. And don't take that decision lightly. And then it says just after just after that, they they make this promise. And then it says, um that then the Israelites dispersed each to their inheritance. So the land had been split up and apportioned to the different parts of the Israelite people, and after they made that promise to Joshua and to God, they disperse each to their inheritance. And that's how the book of Joshua ends. At the end of Jesus' life, he stands up and he's ascending to heaven. He's just, just with his disciples, and and, and that's the promise he, the, the commission he gives to them: go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. There's the difference. Joshua, at the end of his story, asks them to commit to God and then they enjoy their inheritance. Jesus asks us to commit to God and then says, go and tell everyone else so that they can come with you. And the question is, which one do we do? And the answer is both because we can enjoy our inheritance now. We commit to God now. We say, as for for me and my house, God, I want to serve you. And we do that now here. And we enjoy the benefits that brings. We know, we talk about the kingdom being already and not yet. There are things that we can enjoy right now here on earth of the kingdom of God. And we can live in that inheritance right now. Even before we, we eventually die from this life when we go to new life in heaven, we can live in that inheritance right now. But the thing that Jesus adds to it is go and tell the rest of the world go to jerusalem go to the ends of the earth, ends of the earth they need to know this too and so that is the tension we live in that is that that is the beauty that we live in of being able to say oh, i'm saved i'm a follower of jesus i'm loved by him and i can live in grace and freedom and salvation i can do that right now but i'm also going to serve god and i'm also going to follow him and i'm also going to tell as many people as i can you can do this too and that is i believe Our challenge today is as the church of God, as Freedom Church Liverpool and as Christians in the world. There's a a Joshua calling on us and there's a Jesus calling on us. And it is that God is our salvation and everyone else needs to hear it too.